Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, Covenant Grace Church. I'm excited that we're going to begin a new series this morning. Uh, The series is called Reunited. It's a series on relationships, what the Bible has to say about all of our relationships and how to make them better. This seems like a great time to do it because this whole season of coronavirus has really put a lot of challenges on our relationships. And I thought it'd be a great time for us to dig into what the Bible has to say about that. And also, after a long time of isolation, we're hoping that in the coming months that this is a time of reunions. Reunions with family, reunions with school, reunions even as a church. Though the COVID numbers in our area have not gone down, they're actually up. What we're seeing is that this is going to be a long-term reality, and we have to start to find ways to adapt to this new environment and still maintain the relationships that God has called us to. And that's going to take a lot of extra effort, extra desire, and extra wisdom. And so that's why we want to dig into this series called Reunited. Best place to start when you're thinking about relationships, to think through what the Bible has to say about them, is to go where Jesus always went. Jesus always went to Genesis 1 and 2. And so we're going to be mostly in Genesis 2 this morning. And we're going to see God's original design for our relationships, for friendship, for work, for marriage, for family. And we're going to do that throughout this series. And then we're also going to look at not only those different types of relationships, but the biblical tools that we have to improve those relationships. And in these first couple chapters of Genesis, we find out what we were made for, why things are hard, what's holding us back, and how we can change. And so the first question to ask is, what were we made for? What were you made for? I think that's a question that any worldview worth holding is going to tell you. If you have a worldview that doesn't tell you what you were made for, it's a significant flaw in any worldview. Let's just put it that way. So what were you made for? Genesis here in Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that we were made for relationships. We were made for relationships with God and with each other. First, let's look at how we were made for relationships with God. You were made for a relationship with God. You were made for God. Um, It all started in the beginning with a God overflowing in happiness and joy who wanted to share his life with creatures that could know him back in a relationship and response. So what did God create us for? God created us first to be his image bearers. Take a look at Genesis 1, 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if you drop down to verse 27, it says, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So we're not just any creatures. We were created with the highest honor and value. We were created to bear God's image in the world. That whole idea of an image bearer goes back to in the Near East, kings would put little statues or inscriptions all around their kingdom. They would have images of that king to show, you know, who's the ruler of this kingdom. And so as you walked around a a Near East kingdom, you would find these little statues and signs and things that would have that image. God did that throughout the world by scattering the world with humans, living images. We were designed to be like billions of tiny little mirrors on a 45 degree angle as God's glory shines down upon us and out into the world, that we would reflect his glory into the world and that we would fill the world with the light of God's glory. Guys, imagine what it would be like if everybody was 
imaging forth God's glory clearly, if the world got filled with that kind of light, that if everyone reflected the, the love and the joy and the peace of their creator, be like heaven on earth, right? Which, if you look at the Bible, is where things are headed. If you look at the two, last two chapters of Revelation, you'll see that that's exactly where the world's headed. So we were created to be image bearers of God. We were created to be rulers of God's world. Genesis 1.28, take a look at that. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Human beings were actually made to rule over God's world as his representatives. Not in a destructive way where we just kind of crush it, but as stewards of his creation. And so we should do our best to care for creation because God gave it to us to manage and create something beautiful out of it. After all, the first work there in Genesis 2 is a garden. And so if you think of a garden, you don't just leave a garden completely wild, right? It's something you shape and you cultivate and you order and you make it more fruitful, not destroy it. Later in the series, when we look at our role of work and our work relationships, we'll see how that passage comes into play. I'm really excited for that part. We were made to be God's image bearers, rulers over his creation. And third, we were made to be God's kids. I think this is really important. God didn't just create us to perform a role as if we're his employees. God created us to have a relationship with him as his children. Look at how God created the first person. Look at verse 7 in chapter 2. Then the Lord formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Don't you love that? I mean, it's so personal, it's so intimate, right? That God forms that first man, Adam, out of the dust of the earth. He's kind of molding them out, him out of clay. And after he shapes him with his own hands, he, he blows the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. So he makes him, and God doesn't literally have hands, this is a figure of speech, but he, he makes him personally, and then he blew his spirit into Adam and he became a living being. In mouth to nostril resuscitation. Um, he made each one of us with that same kind of personal care. If you look at Psalm 139, it talks about how we were made and crafted by him in the womb. Um, my daughter Ellie, she really loves making little clay people. So she's got this clay and she'll make them and then she'll put them in the oven and get them hard and everything. And the other night she was teaching me how to make these these people and she's got a whole system for how to make them, how to make their pants, how to make their eyes and their nose and all the different parts and everything. So I get to pick out the parts and I'm making them with clay and obviously she's way better at it than I am. But one of the things I noticed as I was making this little clay person is I got kind of attached to mine, <laughs> you know? And uh, here he is, by the way. He, he doesn't have a name yet, but he's uh, he's got a solid beard and um, yeah, got hands in the pockets, very relaxed looking dude. Um, anyway, if you guys have names you want to give them, you can put it in the, in the live stream comments. But I noticed that I got attached to him. And I'm just imagining God forming us and then blowing his spirit into Adam. And then he became a living being. And Ellie and I were talking about how, how amazing that whole thing is, that he was able to make them come to life. And I was saying, you know, what would it be like if you could just blow into these little people and they came alive and, and how much you'd love them and be attached to them. And then look at verse 15. It says, the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Now, now the Lord sets this, this man down in his little environment that he's made for him, his little home, this garden. 
And I love that the Lord just doesn't seem to be able to leave Adam alone. You know, he's, he's, he's wanting to talk to him. He's wanting to help him discover new things and to teach him, to play with him, right? To, to enjoy him, to love him. It reminds me of a new parent, you know, and you got that new baby. You want to look at the baby and, and check the baby out. And that's what God's doing. He comes down in the cool of the day and he's, he's spending time with him. And, and God taught Adam like a father what, what Adam was made for. I mean, we don't get to make up, contrary to popular belief and kind of the memes of this world, we don't get to make up our purpose for existing. The creator God, he tells us what we're made for. And that's what he's doing here in Genesis. So our creator, the one who formed us, is telling us what he made us for. And God taught Adam his law. Take a look at Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Notice, guys, that those rules are super generous. You've got this whole garden full of lush fruit and food, and he tells him, you know, you can eat of any tree except that one. Notice that he doesn't say, you can only eat of this one, not all the others, right? It's generous, right? You can eat of all the trees of the garden except that one, Adam. That one is poisonous. Don't eat that, right? We were created to live in that kind of happy trust and dependency on this good and generous, joyful God. That's what we were created for. We were also created, guys, for a relationship with each other. And I get that from verse 18. Take a look at Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, this is surprising in the narrative. We didn't read Genesis 1, but if you read through Genesis 1, there's a refrain. God works for a day, and he, he looks at all of it, and, he, and God says, he sees it, and he says, it's good. And the next day, he works, he stops, he looks at it, and he goes, it's good. And he does that five times. The very last time he looks at everything he made and he says it's very good, right? And then you come to Genesis 2.18 and the Lord says something's not good. It's not good that man should be alone. And so as you read through it, you'll see good, 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 very good, not good. Okay, it's not good for any human being to be alone. Not good for any human being to be alone. God made all of his creatures uh, in different ways. Some creatures can thrive alone. We have two tortoises in our yard, and uh, they're leopard tortoises, and we got one, and then I wanted to get another one, and I wasn't really getting the other one to be a companion for the first one because they don't care about each other. They act like each other don't exist. It's the weirdest thing. Like, they don't even acknowledge each other when they're nearby. But humans are different. We're created to where we cannot thrive alone. No human being does well alone. And we'll talk later specifically about marriage because that's kind of the context of this passage. But for now, let's look at those first two people as the first two friends because that's really what they were. Marriage is a covenant friendship fundamentally. And so this morning, I want to look at these two people as the first two friends. And guys, friendship is fundamental to all of our relationships. Friendship is fundamental to marriage. Our work thrives on friendships. Our parenting, our parenting is really an opportunity to raise our own future friends. I look at it that way. I think that like I'm in the process, in the power of the Spirit, with the help, great help of my wife, leading and teaching and disciplining these kids with the goal of that they are gonna be my adult friends, right? Our church is really a group of friends. We're a group of friends working together to do this. Um, this isn't a corporation, this isn't a business. It's a friendship, right? And being skilled at the art of friendship is fundamental to all of our relationships. 
Guys, introvert or not, you were made with a need for human friendship. All of you, there's no exceptions. Interestingly, God was the first one to notice. Take a look at the passage, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. Like Adam hadn't noticed it yet. God noticed it first and noticed that God's good with that. In fact, that's God's design. God designed Adam to need friendship. Our need for friendship, guys, isn't like a bug in our programming. Uh, our need for friendship is a feature in God's design. It's not a bug in our programming. It's a feature of God's design. It's actually one of the ways that we reflect God, that we bear his image. Because remember, God is one God eternally existing in three persons. And so as we're living in community with friends, we're actually reflecting the way the Trinity has always enjoyed one another. Tim Keller put it this way. There was never a time in which friendship was not because from all eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were delighting in each other. So in Genesis 2, we see that God has made us for friendships. What kind of friendships? God has made us for helpful friendships. Take a look at verse 18. I will make a helper fit for him. God made us for friendships that help each other, especially that help each other to pursue God and live out his mission together. Guys, the best kind of friendships are the friendships with a common quest, where you're pursuing God and fulfilling his mission together. Um, when you look at movies that are about friendship, you know, think of movies like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. Those are great friendship movies because they're about something, right? They're about a journey. They're about a mission. They're about a quest. One of my favorite parts of us being a church together is actually the friendships. Earlier, I got off a, um, a phone call, conference call, with the other elders, and I was just reflecting on the fact that we're friends. You know, you hear a lot about pastors being lonely and isolated and all that stuff. I don't feel any of that because we actually lead this church as friends. It's a friendship. We're in this together. We're doing this together. It's a, it's a mission with friends. And I feel that with all of you, too, that have gotten really involved. You know, some of you guys have been here from the beginning and some of you guys have come more recently. But, you know, you invite people, you, you help when we gather, you um, pray, you support, and it, it's, a, it's a company of friends. I'm so thankful for all the friendships in the church. One of my favorite things about this is that we're friends building something together. It's awesome. So helpful friendships. He made us for complementary friendships. Like take a look at verse 18 again. I will make a helper fit for him. Friends are not clones. At least the best kind of friends are not clones. The best kind of friends have enough differences to you to where they can challenge you and they can strengthen you. And when you think of complementary, there's a fittedness like um, like puzzle pieces. And as we come together, our differences are something that are helpful. And those of you guys who have been around Covenant Grace long enough know that we value that, that we're not a factory of clones, right? That we actually greatly value all kinds of differences from personality to you know, background to any differences. You know, even the differences that we might have politically, theologically, things like that, they strengthen us, right? Friends are not clones. The best kinds of friends have differences that will challenge you. They are fit for you. They may even correct you because they see things differently. They may correct you. A Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A good friend, a complimentary friend, will wound you. Not wound you to hurt you. Wound you like a surgeon makes an incision, right? Good friend will correct you, 
with the hope of helping you and strengthening you. And that's what we do because we're not, we're not clones. We're not exactly the same. And so um, he also made us for enjoyable friendship. In verse 23, when Adam first sees Eve, he says, this at last, you know, you can see that this companionship was so desperately wanted by him by the time you get to that verse. Um, Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes in his earnest counsel. Isn't that great? The Bible has so much to say about friendship. You see that the second human was created for friendship, and you see all throughout Scripture this beautiful theme of friendship. You even see with Jesus in his band of followers, that it's a company of friends. You see in the early church, them living out the mission together as friends. Bible is so huge and rich on friendship. The fourth century church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, he said this, if anyone were to ask me, what is the best thing in life? I would answer friends. Isn't that awesome? And that includes obviously your spouse if you're married, but wouldn't you say the same? What's the best thing in life? The best thing in life is friends. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, Is there any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? (laughs) I love that. Is there any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a good fire? I would answer, no. That's great. We were made for honest friendships. In verse 25, it says that they were naked and unashamed. Okay, now I hope this doesn't get too weird for you. Okay, just stick with me a little bit here. I know exactly what naked and unashamed means in this context, in this context of marriage. And we're going to get to that in this series. We'll actually have a message specifically on that. But let's think about what this means as friends, okay? That Adam and Eve were able to be completely open and honest about who they were and everything about themselves. I mean, isn't that what you want from your closest relationships, from your closest friends? To, To not have to hide who you are but to be fully known and fully received. Um, Tim Keller put it this way, to be loved and not known is comforting, but superficial, because they don't really know you. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right, that kind of rejection. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from our pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Isn't that what you want? You want to be fully known and truly loved. Doesn't this sound great? That's what God wants for all of the friendships that we have, this whole network of friendships, which is the church. That's what the Lord wants for our friendships in, in our church. That's what the Lord wants in our families. That's what the Lord wants in your marriage, if you're married. That's what we're learning to do as disciples of Jesus. So Jesus, I'm going to talk about in a little bit, Jesus is the master in the area of friendship, and he's going to teach us as his students. We, being a Christian is, is trusting in Jesus, having your sins forgiven by his sacrificial death, and being made right with him, and then entering as his student or his disciple and learning from him. And one of the things we can learn from Jesus is the practice of the art of friendship, which is hugely needed. Now, there are challenges to this, and the challenge is called sin. (laughs) If you take a look at Genesis 3, it all begins with a serpent. Sin makes friendship harder, And, and that serpent comes into the garden, and that serpent is Satan. He's just looking like a serpent. And the venom that that serpent has is a lie. And the lie is this, that maybe God isn't that good, generous parent that we thought he was. 
maybe God's stingy. Maybe God's holding back. That was the serpent's lie. That was his venom. And the serpent's bite injected that venom deep into their souls. And you can see that because Adam and Eve believed the lie and they rebelled against God and they ate of the tree they should not have eaten of. And that wasn't the big deal really is eating of the tree. The big deal was what was the heart behind it, which was a distrust and a rejection of God as their father, as their creator, as the one who loved them most. And they sinned and they fell away from God. Let me ask you this. Have you ever doubted that God's commands are good and wise and generous? Have you ever heard or read anything that God has said in his word command wise and thought, well, that's not good. That's not wise. That's not generous. Of course you have. You have every time you've sinned because we have all been bit by that venom from the serpent. We have all been affected by that lie. We've all been bit. And it was that sin that unraveled both their relationship to God and their relationship to each other. Let's look at the relationship to God first. Take a look at Genesis 3, 8. They got separated from God. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Guys, this is super sad. This is super sad because they used to rejoice when they heard the sound of God coming in the cool of the day. They'd be excited like when a, a dad comes home from work and his little kids are just going crazy and super excited and jumping all over him. That's what they would have been like every time the Lord visited them in the garden. But now what's happened? Now they're hiding in fear and in guilt. And so they're separated from God. Secondly, they're separated from each other. We see that in a few ways. We see that in their shame and their hiding. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so they were, you know, living naked before, quite literally. And as soon as they fell into sin, what happened is they had shame and they started hiding themselves. This is before the Lord shows up. So this is hiding themselves from each other at this point. They're obviously going to hide from the Lord in the moment when he shows up. But they were hiding from each other. And guys, this still happens today, doesn't it? I mean, maybe you struggle with that in your friendships, and your friendships always have kind of a real superficial level because you're afraid to be fully known. You're afraid to be seen. Um, you have that shame and that sense of hiding. And so your, your friendships are always kind of real thin because anytime there's any way to kind of break a little deeper, you pull back, right? It's shame. It's hiding. That's an that's a aspect of the fall. Second, there's blame shifting. Look at verse 12. When uh, God confronts Adam and asked him if he ate of the fruit, this is his answer. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to me gave me the fruit and I ate of it. What's he doing? He's blame shifting, right? He's blaming others for his sin, right? So they both sinned, he sinned, and he's blame shifting. And, and we do that, right, in our relationships. That's a very common thing that gets us stuck in a cycle is blaming others for our sin instead of owning it and repenting of it. You own it, you repent of it, you get forgiveness, you move on. But the other option is you, you don't own it, you don't repent of it, and you just keep blame shifting. And we can often run an internal story in our minds telling us about how the sins that we've done are really someone else's fault. That, that we never would have done it if they hadn't whatever, right? 
And so we do this blame shifting and that separates us. I mean, it's very common in marriages, very common in friendships, very common all over the place, right? As we interact with people that we have those internal stories where we blame shift. There's also the problem of wrath and anger in their relationship. Where do I see that? Well, when God confronts Adam and says, did you eat of the tree? And he says it was Eve's fault. Do you guys remember? Do you guys remember what the penalty was that God had given if they ate of that tree? He told them then the day they ate of it, they would surely die. Okay, so now let's go forward. God comes and he asks Adam, did you eat of the tree? And he says it was Eve's fault. What's he basically doing? He's basically saying, kill her, <laughs> kill her, right? She's the one you wanna kill, right? So there's blame shifting and there's obviously a fair amount of resentment and wrath and anger that he throws upon her saying, it's her, it's the woman you gave me, right? And as they're cast out of the garden, you can imagine what that did to their relationship. You can imagine the damage that did to their friendship, especially after Adam had just thrown his wife under the bus and, you know, but Eve was the first one to kind of find it and bring it to him. And you could imagine the back and forth fighting that would happen as they left the garden, as they move east of Eden. Whose fault is this that we've lost paradise? Some of you guys, some of you couples have gone through some difficult things, maybe financially or otherwise, and there's this thought of whose fault is it? Who can, who can take the blame for that? You can imagine how huge it is when you lose Eden, <laughs> when you lose paradise. You know, whose fault is this? Not mine, it's hers. Not mine, it's his. Blaming and wrath. And guys, this is something that's broken inside of them. It's called sin. And with that sin, there's shame, there's hiding, there's blame shifting, there's wrath. And they handed that down to their kids and their kids' kids all the way down to us. We can see that they handed it down to their kids because their first two kids, one kills the other one. And so you can see how sin's effects spread throughout the human race all the way down to us. And it's important to see this, guys, because you might be wondering in the relationship you're dealing with right now and trying to figure out like, how do I move forward? Why is this so hard? You might think like, why is this relationship so hard? Is it just me? Is it just us? Is there something particularly wrong with me? Is there something particularly wrong with us? Um, you know, I look at other people's lives and kind of the, the view that they put forward of their lives and it looks so easy and so good. And the answer is, is that no, this is due to the fall. We're all affected by sin. We're all gonna be tempted by sin. Relationships are hard for a reason. You might say to yourself in marriage, you might say, well, you know, shouldn't love be easier than this? What would make you think that? <laughs> I mean, read Genesis 3. There's no reason to believe this, that love should be easy, right? So what happens here is these people, they fall away from the Lord, and then they split away from each other. And it's important to see this because we need to be realistic as we go into this series and not assume that we're starting with a blank slate or a world that's neutral. It's not neutral. The cards are stacked against us. And it's important, too, to realize that the problems we have with each other actually are a reflection of the problems we have with God. Our biggest problem isn't our separation from each other, but our separation from God. Our sin has created a real shame, which is a real reason to hide from God until you come to Christ. Our sin means that there is real blame that belongs to us. Our sin means that there is real anger and there is real wrath and it's upon us before we come to Christ. So how do we get reunited? How do we get reunited to God and to each other? The good news is that that's not for you to have to figure out. 
It's not your job to figure out how to get reunited to God and to each other. That's actually not something for you to figure out. God has actually already worked out a way for you to be reunited to him. Religions, guys, a religion is man's attempt to solve a problem God's already solved, <laughs> okay? Religion is, a, is man's attempt to solve a problem that God's already solved. God has already given us a way and a path back to him and a path for us to be reunited to each other. And you can get a hint of it there in Genesis 3.21. It says, and the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And so what you have there is in this beautiful, peaceful garden, God reaches down and grabs some of the animals. He kills them. He skins them. He puts it over them. He covers their shame. So the, the solution in some way, at least you can see in that verse, is that there's a death and there's a covering for their shame. And then God gives a promise. He gave a promise in chapter 3 of a better covering coming. There is a promise of a son who would one day come to free all of us from the sin that ruins our relationship with God and with each other. And that son, there's a story all the way through the Bible telling more and more about that coming son that's going to take care of that. And then surprisingly, when he arrives, he's actually God himself. So God himself becomes that human son that's going to set things right. And if you look at John 1.1, it's really beautiful. Take a look at it. John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can see the picture of the Trinity there. And then drop down to verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh. So we know who the Word is, right? Who is God? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I love that description of Jesus, full of grace and truth, because it's exactly what he's like when you read the Gospels. He's, he's so fully truthful, and he's so fully gracious. Many of us struggle with one or the other, like, well, I'm more of a truth person, you know, or I'm more of a grace person. But the reality is that real grace has to be attached to truth, and real truth always is going to tell us about grace. And so Jesus is this beautiful combination of truth and grace. I mean, a person that can hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and yet not leave them where they were because he tells them the truth and gives them the grace to change. It's amazing. He's full of grace and truth. Wasn't he perfect? Isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't he amazing? Have you read the Gospels lately and just looked at who he is, how perfect he is, full of grace and truth? John Gerstner said this, no one has yet discovered the word Jesus ought to have said or the deed that Jesus ought to have done. Nothing he does falls short. In fact, he is always surprising you and taking your breath away because he's incomparably better than you could imagine for yourself. Jesus is tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence, holiness and unbending convictions without the slightest lack of approachability, power without insensitivity, passion without prejudice. There is never a false step, never a jarring note. This is life in the highest. Jesus is just this amazing person when he comes. And Jesus is this amazing friend. What's neat about Jesus is he doesn't like come and then he's like a hermit out in the wilderness until it's his time to die on the cross. 
Jesus is an amazing friend. He's looking for friends. He's, he's cruising around. He's collecting friends. And the kind of friends that he collects are shady mostly, right? They're tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and just, you know, the kind of people that you wouldn't think that Yahweh come in the flesh would want to find. And he goes around and he collects all these people, this, this crew of shady characters. I mean, think about people like, like Matthew the tax collector, who's a total traitor against their people and, and totally motivated by money and all that. He, he takes Matthew right out of his tax booth. Or Peter, you know, Peter's constantly, you know, wanting to say things he shouldn't say. He's really brash. He's really quick to, to pull the trigger. Or John, you know, John, one of the sons of thunder. Or, or Mary Magdalene in the place that he brought her out of. Jesus is always finding the kind of friends you, you'd be surprised at. And, and Jesus always told them the truth. You know, he didn't leave them where they were. He told them the truth, but he always told them the truth in a way to give them grace. Jesus was always full of grace and truth. And that grace he had to give them, and the grace he gives us to cover our sin, was way more costly than it was in Genesis 3. Remember back in that God covers Adam and Eve with these animal skins. He covers their shame so the animals die and the skin covers their shame. It's a picture of Christ, right? It's a picture of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who died in our place. And, and just like Adam and Eve were covered with those animal skins, we get covered by Jesus' righteousness. If you're this morning trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Your shame has been covered. You do not need to hide. Jesus removes our shame. Jesus removes our hiding. And what that does to our friendships is that we can be honest to God and to our friends about who we really are and the ways we currently still sin. We can be honest about it. We don't have to hide. We don't have to cover. Jesus is our covering, so we don't have to be shameful and hide. Jesus took our blame. <laughs> Jesus, in this amazing act of reverse blame shifting, he took the blame that was ours and put it on himself. Now, that's a kind of blame shifting you've never seen before. It's a reverse blame shifting. That's the blame you totally deserve for your sin. I'm going to take that and put that on myself. I'm going to take the blame. He took the blame. And so maybe now in our relationships, we could take some blame, right? We could take blame away from others. Or, you know, Jesus took the wrath off of us and put it on himself. There is a wrath and anger of God that is totally deserved for our sin. And he took it off of us and he put it on himself on the cross. So now we can forgive, right? We can take our wrath off of people and forgive them. We can absorb that wrath without dishing it out, just like Jesus did for us. Jesus did all this because he's your friend. If you're trusting in Jesus, he's your friend. Take a look at John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. You're my friends. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? If you believe and follow Jesus, then you're his friend. You're, you must be one of those shady people that, that Jesus cruises around town looking for to choose his friends. And then he doesn't leave you where you're at, right? He gives you truth and he gives you grace. He fills you with truth and grace. So in this reunited series, this relationship series we're gonna do over the next couple months, Jesus is gonna teach us. We're his students, we're his disciples, and he's gonna teach us how to be better friends to one another. He's gonna fill us with grace and truth, just like he is. And I think we really need this right now, guys. I mean, chances are, you have not brought your best to your relationships lately. Would you agree with me on that? You've not brought your best, okay? Um, whether at work or at home or with friends, 
we have not brought our best. We have not been at our best. <laughs> and there's, there's reasons for this, not excuses, but there's explanations, which is that if, if we were told in January what this year was gonna be like, we would not have believed it, okay? There's videos like that where you, know, you tell your past self what it was gonna be like. We would not have believed it. And the other thing is, we would not have thought we could survive it. You know, when you list all the things out. I think we're actually doing pretty amazing for what we've been through. So I just wanna kinda give gold stars all the way around. Y'all get a soccer participation trophy for that. But I think that even even non-Christians, I think people are doing, I know things are crazy, but I think they're actually doing surprisingly well for, for how crazy this is. I mean, we've all been on a big roller coaster. Guys, extend some grace. Everyone you know, including yourself, is not at their best. How could they be? They can't be. And so we need this. We need, we need a series on relationships. We need to be taught by Jesus how to do this. Also, um, we have some extra challenges to navigate. Okay, so hopefully this is a season of reunions, family, school, work, church, time of reunions which means it's also going to be a season of figuring out how do we do relationships in an environment that's not perfect, right? So maybe that means mass. So, you know, a group of Christian friends want to get together around a fire, like C.S. Lewis was talking about, and the only way to do it is everybody's got a mask on. That'd be better than not, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be better than not? You could be six feet apart, social distance with masks on, in front of a fire, enjoying one another's company, or nothing, I would take the first one, right? Or maybe you had to meet outside, which was also a good place to have a fire. For those who are already hermits, like I tend to be, that's gonna take a whole lot of new effort, okay? So maybe before all this, you were kind of introverted hermitous, if that's a word, and it was very hard to get you out to engage in friendship and relationship and connection and community before. Well, guess what? It's a whole lot harder now. And so it's gonna take more effort and it's gonna take more desire. But I would just say, guys, if we'll take the extra effort to go to the store and pick up our groceries, which we do, the extra effort to go to work, the extra effort to shop by you know, wearing masks, do all the things we have to do, this is worth our effort too, isn't it? Isn't this a need? Isn't that what God says? It's not good that man should be alone. You're created with a need for, the, for human relationship, for friendship. And I would just love if the Lord used this series to kind of create more of a longing in your heart, more of a longing for one another in the church, that you would have more desire and put more effort into reaching out and being with each other. And we want to do that, obviously, in a safe way. We don't want to be crazy. But taking those extra efforts, I mean, maybe you wear a mask, maybe you meet outside, whatever, but you see each other and you connect and you have friendship. Third, I think we need this because our relationship skills have likely atrophied. <laughs> Some of you guys haven't been able to be at the gym for a long time, you know, I'm a gym equipment at home, and there's been a, a atrophy and a, maybe a settling and maybe a widening. I think that a lot of us probably have, our relationship skills have atrophied. Maybe you say, you know what, I forgot how to relationship. I know that's not good English, but it's funny. People talk about kind of returning to life as usual. And we had a lot of that talk like a month ago. Oh, I can't wait till it all gets back to normal and all that stuff. You don't hear people saying that as much now. <laughs> but, you know, people talk about returning to life as usual. But guys, what if we could emerge from this better? What if we, if we could emerge from this with stronger friendships, stronger work life, 
stronger marriages, stronger parenting, and it's because we sat at the foot of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is a master at the art of relationships. He's the master at the art of relationships. And we have a chance in this next series, as we dig into his word, to sit at his feet and to learn from him how to be better friends. Let's pray. Father, reunite us. Reunite us physically. We pray for a lifting of all these barriers of this virus that keep us apart. We pray for those when those barriers aren't lifted that we would be able to do the effort, want to do the effort, to see each other, to be with each other, to en enrich one another's lives. Lord, we pray reunite us relationally. We pray that you would reunite friends whose friendship may have soured during this time. Maybe some sort of thing went bad online or through texting or on social media and there's an estrangement there. Lord, reunite our friendships. Reunite our marriages that may have grown cold or maybe are, have, have become very frustrating during this time. Lord, reunite our marriages. Reunite our parent-child relationships, whether those are young kids, uh, teenagers, or even adult children. Lord, we pray that you would bring true reunion with parent-child relationships. Lord, we, we pray that you would reunite co-workers who may be feeling embattled with each other and locked into things. Lord, we pray that you would make us those who reunite. And Lord, if you, if you could reunite us to yourself, your holy self, I'm a sinner, Lord, and you are a holy God. If you could reunite me to you, Lord, then there's no relationship you can't reunite. And we just pray you do it. We pray that we would see that power in our lives. Lord, we're ready. Teach us your ways, Jesus. You have mastered the art of friendship. Please master us. Make us supernaturally good at being friends to one another. And we pray that you would do this for your glory. We pray that you do this for the advancement of the gospel. We pray that many be saved as they see our community of friends and want in and have experienced friendship with us and then they want friendship with you. We pray that you do this for the glory of Jesus, for the praise of Jesus, for the kingdom of Jesus. And all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.